Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Sue Purgis, who will be telling us a bit about the history of needle exchange in Minneapolis and what's going on with that these days. And our second guest will be Dr. Carlo Di Clemente, who is the co-author of Changing for Good, and we'll be talking about the stages of change model. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon, or for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is Sue Purchase. Um, who's talking about needle exchange in Minneapolis. It's a subject that's close to my heart because I learned harm reduction by volunteering at Access Works about uh, 10 years ago or so, um, which was the Minneapolis Needle Exchange at that time. It's no longer in existence, but Sue will tell us a little bit about the history of needle exchange in Minneapolis, how it got started, um, where what the state of affairs is right now. Sue, welcome to the show. Oh, great. Thanks for having me, Ken. Uh, You're welcome. Uh, Tell me a little bit, how did you first get involved in needle exchange? My first involvement in needle exchange happened in, um, I guess, like maybe the spring or fall of 1995 or spring of 96. Um, I used to volunteer with a project in Minneapolis. It was called SafeWorks AIDS Project, and uh, that was my... uh, entrance into doing needle exchange in Minneapolis as a volunteer for um, SafeWorks AIDS Project, a a delivery service similar to Women with a Point when we started out. Okay. Was uh, needle exchange legal at that time in Minneapolis? Needle exchange wasn't necessarily legal. And... um, it is, uh, it's always an interesting story to talk about. At the time, when I started volunteering with SafeWorks AIDS Project, Minnesota AIDS Project had recently started their needle exchange program, uh, which had a research component to it, and that is um, well, certainly the story around what made it legal, that it, that it was legal with an exchange or with a research component with it. And um, so that's when I really got introduced to needle exchange uh, through SafeWorks AIDS Project was an underground program working with a pager system, meeting people literally where they're at and um, getting them the supplies that they needed. And Minnesota AIDS Project had a community-based program that they'd really solicited community support for uh, the implementation of their program, which they ran into some roadblocks along the way, and um, but they eventually they established it, and it was in different uh, geographic locations throughout the city of Minneapolis, and um, oftentimes out of the way and uh, not very accessible sites. And uh, so that's that's where I came into needle exchange, is um, with women with a point, thinking that myself and another volunteer named uh, Tony St. Pierre for SafeWorks AIDS Project, we broke off and created Women with a Point. We felt like, there, for one, that there were women drug users who, who weren't being reached, and so it had a focus on women 
but more it was about uh, Tony and I had both um, had experiences with drug use. And um, we were two women who had a point to make and a point to give. And in terms of legality, we uh, didn't ask for permission. Really good at forgiveness if necessary, but that never really happened. So there was the legal status has always been sort of a gray area, and uh, it's viewed as much more legal within the last, well, within the last, probably since the federal ban was lifted, there, there's a much more um, legal atmosphere about it. Okay, um, you called it women with a point. Uh, do women drug injectors have uh, issues that uh, men don't have so frequently? Yes, yeah, a absolutely that women drug users do have issues that do not impact men in the same way. It is uh, to think about drug use as a whole for a population of people that are using injection drugs, it's difficult. But for women, there's much more stigma attached to being a woman injection drug user. A woman who is parenting is going to experience much more stigma. Uh, there is, just in terms of being able to access drugs for women, it's a much more difficult process than it is for men. And women are much more hidden across the board when it comes to needle exchange and injection drug use than men are. Now, I recall um, when I was working at Access Works, there was some discussion about uh, women sex workers who uh, didn't know how to inject for themselves and who had to have someone inject for them. Uh, are you familiar with that issue? I, I'm absolutely really familiar with it. It is frequently, you know, the literature supports this as well. Uh, that women are, are more oftentimes turned on to injection drug use by a male partner and that, uh, you know, it's a way of controlling women and um, so that their injections aren't necessarily done by themselves. They're administered by somebody else. And, and frequently for women who are sex workers, that, uh, that um, injection might happen with, with whoever, like their male partner or pimp or whoever that other person is in their life and uh, with no real knowledge about their own ability to inject, to learn how to inject, if that makes sense. I mean, it, it's a control issue in many regards for women. And so the harm reduction approach is really about teaching um, safe injecting um, knowing how to inject yourself, it, um, it probably, in, in, in context, it certainly makes a lot of sense, I think, for people who would hear that statement um, in and of itself that uh, teaching women how to be safe injectors probably sounds crazy, but absolutely. It was really about empowering women who were injectors to be able to navigate their own um, life circumstances and to be able to talk about drug use in an open environment where there was no shame, no judgment, uh, really support for women. There's no, uh, you know, you need to be clean and sober, you need to quit using, no... Um, 
no no judgment, no stigma, making it as public health as accessible for women as for all public. So did women with a point host drug user groups? Women with a point did host drug user groups. Uh, There were women-specific groups. There were groups that were uh, just a general harm reduction drug user group. So there was a couple of different styles and uh, really wanting to accommodate just women and then kind of general population, if you will. And it it was very successful. One of my uh, proudest moments at Women with a Point was it we got funding for the women's users group to do um financial education and like some private kind of conservative money uh creating a program for women to like finance a habit on a budget mm-hmm. and so we did a lot of work around financial education what it's like to you know like manage a checking account which at the time, there were less uh, plastic cards available, and it was actually writing out checks, keeping a check register, uh, budgeting your money so that you might have money for rent, for food, but also including your drugs. And that was really a radical concept that uh, certainly got attention, and it got a lot of attention from the women that we served. Women were the point was, you know the, the the history of it. When it started, we were just all delivery with a pager system, and so we would meet people in mutually agreed upon areas where it, it was comfortable for them and comfortable for us doing delivery. And oftentimes, that delivery would happen uh, for women within their home which initially it, it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of guts for people to access a needle exchange program and in that time so that was 1996 and there really hadn't been the attention on needle exchange in Minneapolis certainly that there had been other places and certainly harm reduction in Minnesota was a big deal. It is almost speaking blasphemy. There's there's such a strong influence of 12-step models in Minnesota, abstinence-based models, Minnesota model, the disease model, all of these things that work against drug users. And certainly as we created Women with a Point and using a harm reduction model, it really challenged us. And it... um, So in the beginning, doing delivery to women's houses and being able to talk about who we were, why we were there, that the cops wouldn't jump out, that, you know, oftentimes the initial encounter was just a real strict uh, exchange of clean supplies for used equipment and, you know, talking to people and saying, if there's anything else you need, please feel free to contact us. One clean shot is what we prefer. You know, understanding that it, that is not always possible, but that's what we—that was our mission. That's what we were out to do, and really emphasizing women drug users, but not to exclude other uh, people. 
Well, so I that, know, that was really the beginning of it. I know for sure that the 12-step influence is very strong in Minnesota, and, you know, it doesn't, it's not appropriate for everyone. As I've told many people, as I've written in my uh, little autobiography, um, when I was going to AA, I drank more than I ever had before. I wound up in detox with severe withdrawal. Um, I did not, I was not at all feeling good about being told that I had a disease that had to be cured by God and I had to believe in God and that alcohol was more powerful than I was. It doesn't make any sense, you know. Absolutely. And I think the piece where oftentimes what you hear are a lot of cliches within 12-step programs, and um, one of them that, that I remember is people talking about, you know, people have to reach their bottom. Mm-hmm. And my experience is particularly doing outreach with women with a point, like in the shelter areas downtown, is that people had to reach up to touch the bottom. They had no choice. And um, shortly after Women with a Point started, I became the, um, well, I was on the the planning, uh, the prevention planning group for the state of Minnesota. It's like the CDC mandated uh, prevention planning, and I held the injection drug user seat. And so it was it was a real interesting time that needle exchange wasn't talked about. They had they recognized the need to have people identified from that really taught, you know like represented the epidemic and so including injection drug users but having no clue about what that meant no clue about what it meant to have a needle exchange program what it meant to reach people to really talk about effective HIV prevention measures but not fully understanding what it meant to reach injection drug users successfully with needle exchange in Minnesota. And so that was a real um, exciting time for me personally and professionally is really introducing harm reduction in Minnesota through needle exchange. And that, you know, oftentimes people identify needle exchange and harm reduction like that that's their only concept of harm reduction and that needle exchange is simply one harm reduction strategy for engaging with people who particularly women are really um, hidden and can't access services and despite the fact that this is holy land of treatment and the mothership is here there were many people who were left out of the equation, wouldn't be able to access treatment for a number of different reasons, and that uh, it wasn't effective. And, and oftentimes people in, in professional positions working within HIV prevention really didn't believe that Minnesota had injection drug users, and I think it was really a wake-up call. Yes, I believe that. I'm going to go back to what you said about, you know, talking about hitting bottom is one of the traditional views. And we've talked about this a little bit uh, before with some of our other guests. Uh, when people are traumatized, you know, trauma can drive people to drug use. And adding additional trauma on top of existing trauma is not the way to help people to change. And, you know, telling people, you know, you need to suffer more consequences until you hit bottom, is not the thing that's going to bring people to their change. Rather than talking about hitting bottom, I'm thinking, you know, it's better to talk about 
a turning point. And as you said, sometimes it's not going down till you get to the turning point, but actually coming up till you can get to a turning point where you can make some positive changes. Ab- absolutely. I think about um, when women with a point, when we first started out, we did um, uh, religiously um, outreach on Curry Avenue every Tuesday night. Curry Avenue and then the shelters like St. Stephen's where they were serving a meal. And frequently, uh, Women with a Point was incorporated in in, uh, September of 1996. And September was still warm, but November was cold. And so we would be doing outreach during the winter on Curry Avenue, and we would bring socks. And, you know, we had outreach bags, and we had socks and granola bars and all these things in our bag. And, like, the commentary around town um, within like the the prevention community is what are these women doing? <laughs> you know they're they're handing out socks to people on the street and uh, winter scarves, hats, gloves, all of those things. So really, there was a push or a pressure to define who we were as a needle exchange and harm reduction um, and HIV prevention. And it's really talking in community meetings about how can you effectively talk to people about preventing HIV when it's 50 below zero with the wind chill in Minnesota. HIV is the farthest thing from your mind. You know, like like thinking about what does it take to survive in Minnesota in the wintertime to do something different. It, it It's brutal. It is. It is, and um, I know some of the shelters would adopt policies. Um, if people came in intoxicated, they would be banned from the shelter for a month in the winter, and that didn't make any sense at all. Oh, it, it's absolutely horrible, and you're absolutely right, and it still happens. And, I mean, like, I think that we have come a long way in the way that services are provided currently with it more of an emphasis on harm reduction, but it still happens. I mean, like, that—that that is one battle that we haven't won yet. Yes, I know. Um, when, did, uh, when did you get a storefront for uh, Women with a Point? I think the storefront, I was just thinking right before we talked, um, I don't know if it was 1999, I want to say we, as we started Women with a Point, we had a small static office space which uh, didn't maintain a small static space too often. People found out where we were and, um, you know, business started increasing and uh, wrote a grant to the Minnesota Department of Health um, with reluctance. We were the new kids on the block, and we wrote a grant asking for, I think at the time they had $360,000 available for HIV prevention for injection drug users, none of which could be used for needle exchange. And the part of me at the time, my response was, well, what am I going to do with this? Make bleach kits? (laughs) You know, I was really, really cynical about all of it, but... It was really uh, a visit to San Francisco and seeing the women's program there and the possibilities of what could happen with a fixed space 
And so out of this $360,000, I think that we applied for 300000 and we got 280000 at the time, and that got us the storefront, So, which was, was absolutely amazing. There was a, a space for people to come into. It opened doors, like in January, really cold winter, uh, we could only do needle exchange in that small back room. Mm-hmm. The funding through the health department paid for the bulk of the space and um, uh, a couple of different programs, you know, excluding needle exchange. It's, it was really the beginning of, of creating comprehensive programming. So, like I said, 1999, I think, 98, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. It, it was relatively soon. I mean, we went from a very small ten to twenty thousand dollar budget initially um, within four years to go to almost a half a million dollar budget. We, we were very successful in serving the needs of drug users in the community. And that was uh, right. That was in downtown Minneapolis, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Right downtown, it was on 15th Street in between Nicollet and LaSalle. And the way that we, I always love the story about how we got the space. And um, it was really, you know, we were flying by the seat of our pants in creating harm reduction in Minnesota. And um, even the real estate agent, when he was looking for a space for us, he would say to me, now, what do I tell people that you do, Sue? I'd say we do HIV prevention with an emphasis on women, never getting into into any real details about it, but had a, a commercial real estate agent that looked for a space for us, um, and it was really based on demographic data that we had kept all along, and... Um, we asked very few questions, but one of them included zip code. And so we could really start tracking where uh, we were seeing people, the majority of drug users, what geographic location within the Twin Cities. So that helped us define where we were going to put the storefront. So it was on a bus line. It was off of Nicollet Avenue, so it there was... Uh, visibility and accessibility, but there wasn't, um, we could be fairly low-key and underground. It was a really nondescript space, and so if you didn't know what you were looking for, you wouldn't necessarily find it. There were, you know, like some, uh, like, low-key, the sign on the door, um, you know, giving the clues to people that we were across the alley from the 19 bar that we had a back door that they could access if they felt uncomfortable coming through the front door. Mm-hmm. Really uh, trying to get creative in, in reaching people when we had opened this storefront and, and word of mouth. And um, I think that there was certainly a part of me that thought I was absolutely crazy, that it would never work in Minnesota, and really having my um, misgivings and doubts. So I thought, this is not New York, this is not San Francisco, this is the holy land of treatment, nobody's going to walk in the door, it's going to be a failure, all of these things. And the exciting part, and um, I'm sure like the people that I worked with thought I was absolutely nuts, 
the, the day when four women walked in within a space of like maybe 15 minutes apart, um, a Native American woman, an African American woman, there was a Latina woman that came in. And all I remember thinking is, oh my God, it is really working. There's a chance that this is going to be successful. So that was the storefront beginning period as women with a point. Well, I think uh, I remember the matches that you had, the book matches that were made up with the uh, access work, uh, access works on them and the address. And I think that was a very effective strategy of informing people because, you know, people have to cook their drugs and so they need matches. Absolutely. And that was the first thing that we did with Women with a Point once we created a logo was created matches for marketing. It, it was the most effective tool. And you're absolutely right. People need to cook their dope. They need to smoke cigarettes. At the time, you could smoke publicly in Minnesota in restaurants. So it was a great way to do outreach. You know, like we could leave. We smoked cigarettes. We'd leave matchbooks on the counter. Uh, they got people's attention for no other reason that, you know, it's really like, wow, what is this? Clean needles save lives. And then had information for contact. And um, it was impressive. It really went a long way in um, creating, uh, well, in letting people know where where uh, there was a needle exchange and that there were people that were willing to uh, provide clean equipment in a safe, non-judgmental fashion and the cops didn't jump out and then they had opened a storefront and people could come in. And it really was people just beginning to trickle in the door and then, you know, reporting back to their their associates that it was a safe experience. Now, how did the Women with a Point transition into Access Works? Well, I, I guess in large part because we were successful. And to some degree, Women with a Point, uh, some people interpreted that as that we didn't serve men or that men weren't welcome and that it was really, as one person described it, the hottest gig in town and everybody wanted a piece of that and we felt that it might be more effective if we changed our name to something a little less, uh, I don't know, gender sensitive, I guess, and that it really access works. And uh, it's a play on words, mm-hmm. you know, that you can access works as in a, a, a syringe. You know, the, the slang term for a syringe is works. Mm-hmm. And, and all about access, and that was a staff person that worked with us. It was her idea, and uh, it was a good one. And then um, eventually um, the funding ran out, right? And uh, what's what's going on in Minnesota today? Can people access clean needles? Can they get them if they need them? Well, I think that they... Um, they can access them. It's been a bit of a, a, a glitch since Access Works closed. It closed, um, well, it, it, in part to financial issues, but, but not um, exclusively. It takes um, a lot of creativity to make needle exchange work when there's no money. And that um, at the time when Access Works closed, the federal ban was still in place on needle exchange. It had not been lifted. So, you know, that 
besides a monetary uh, issue, really impacted policy for needle exchange. And so Access Works was just short of that lifting of the ban. There wasn't a lot of funding. Um, there were some other maybe more political issues that happened in Minnesota, driven driven by funding, certainly. But so it closed in 2009, July 1st. And um, Minnesota AIDS Project uh, was a needle exchange option. They continue to be a needle exchange op option in Minneapolis. There is a trans health clinic in Minneapolis that's also an option for needle exchange and not just for people who are uh, transgender. They serve anybody. And then uh, there's the Morpheus Project, which started as a result of the closing of Access Works on July 1st, 2009, and that's been a new program that I have started, which is really just starting to have some success. And um, there were a lot of people left in a lurch for needle exchange services, they still are. They they might they may have you know like people come and go throughout needle exchange. They might not be using for a while. People might go to jail, go to treatment, do whatever. So there are people that are still to this day going to the back door of Access Works looking for syringes, and there's no information. They don't know where to go, and so it's again through word of mouth, and they start finding out what's going on and, and start the same process about who, you know, you can access syringes through that you can trust. It's happening in, well, at a time that's really interesting in Minnesota. There's pharmacy access, which has its um, really positive, but certainly limitations. People take a real risk going into pharmacies. So there's three needle exchange programs. The federal ban has been lifted. The Minnesota Department of Health has been absolutely stellar in supporting needle exchange. They always have been. I've always had a very wonderful working relationship with them, but they're a bureaucracy. And so they t took certain risks in the beginning, and I think that Access Works really paved the way for other needle exchange and harm reduction uh, programs to happen in Minneapolis and uh, the health department, many of the same people that worked at Access Works years ago are now working at the health department. They are a huge supporter of harm reduction and needle exchange, uh, not just in Minneapolis, but throughout Minnesota, which is crucial. And there have to be responsive programs that are offering uh, syringe availability through a variety of mechanisms because it, it can't be a one-size-fits-all approach. There, there's, um, you know, there's liabilities with needle exchange for different people going into them. Somebody's going to feel more comfortable in a pharmacy. And when I mention it comes at a time where in Minnesota there's, there's uh, certainly a huge increase in heroin. Uh, the Department of Human Services for the state compare Minneapolis with Portland, Oregon for purity of heroin, uh, large um, uh, overdose issue, a uh, lot of methadone injecting, a lot of prescription pill injecting, so a huge need for needle exchange, more room for harm reduction, 
and Morpheus Project is really getting back to like the roots of of women with a point and creating programming that is responsive, but also like to, to people's needs, really responsive to people's needs, but also really understanding how that the funding can be um, well. It's really, really difficult to get funding. Despite the ban having been lifted, this country's in financial hardship, to say the least. There isn't the funding streams that there used to be strictly for needle exchange from private foundations. I'm happy to say that uh, I got notification today from the Comer Foundation that um, Harm Reduction Sisters, which is like the parent organization for Morpheus Project, just got a small grant through Stephanie Comer. So which will allow us to, you know, like uh, build the capacity of Morpheus to serve drug users and also uh, provide much more comprehensive overdose education and prevention, which is crucial to good public health in Minneapolis. That's really great. That's really great. So uh, I think it's time. Our next guest is our next guest is calling in. So I'm going to thank you for being our guest tonight, and we are going to move on to uh, Carlo Di Clemente. Thank you very much, Ken. I'm a fan of Carlo's uh, Stages of Change. It's wonderful. We wouldn't be here without it. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Hello. Carlo, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Welcome ah. to the show, Carlo. Um, Good. Thank you. Let me give a little introduction here. Uh, Carlo Di Clemente is one of the co-authors of Changing for Good, and he's uh, one of the developers of the Stages of Change model, which is an extremely influential model. We use it in our HAMS harm reduction program. Um, people, lots of people are using it, and they find it very useful. So, uh, Carlo, welcome to the show, and tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about how the stages of change model. Well, first tell us, what is the stages of change model? What are the stages of change, and how does this model work? Okay, that's a, a, a good question. There was, um, the, the idea behind it when, when we first started out here was that, that change was often seen as kind of an on-off switch, so that you either made a change or you didn't. And, and there was little attention paid to kind of what were the things that you needed to do before to prepare yourself and to get ready for change. So what we did with the stages is really break up the process of change into five kind of distinct um, processes or steps or whatever in that, in that process. Uh, the first is what we've called pre-contemplation. It's just the people who are really not considering change. Uh, at the present time. They're happy with the status quo. They don't want to change whatever particular behavior uh, maybe someone else wants them to change or um, whatever behavior they're, they're engaged in, they're happy with. In pre-contemplation, uh, there, there just isn't much interest or concern about change. The second is really contemplation. So when people become interested, then they start thinking about, well, should I change? Would this be a good idea? And And that is a process where that leads to decision-making, I mean, hopefully. Sometimes it can lead to lots of just kind of thinking over things over and over again. Um, but, but basically, that would lead you then to the kind of decision. Once you've made the decision, you're still not quite there yet, and there's the preparation stage where 
you really the, the issue here is really commitment and planning. How, how can I make this change happen? And then finally, you once you kind of implement the plan, you move into what we call action. But action isn't the last step of the process, really. It's maintenance. Uh, action kind of gets you going, and in that phase, you kind of have to you have to almost establish a new pattern of behavior. And then in the final phase, it's really maintenance, which is really kind of uh, sustaining that change over time and integrating that change into your lifestyle. So once you've, you've done those kind of things, you've really kind of moved through that process of change. So that's what we kind of came up with. Um, there is this what we call termination phase as well, where kind of it seems like the process is over. Uh, the change is so integrated into the lifestyle, it's so normative that the, the change process itself kind of is is terminated. Um, so those are the, those are the stages and what we've kind of talked about in terms of the stages. Now, uh, when people draw a diagram of the stages of change model, they don't draw a, a straight line; they draw a spiral. Why is that? Well, I mean, ideally, it would be a straight line. Uh, if I tapped you on the shoulder and you said, uh, oh, you know, you need, you need to change this, Ken, and you then said to me, okay, well, that sounds really interesting. I, I, I'm agree I agree. I've thought about it. I'm going to do it. I plan to do it. I take action, and I um, uh, sustain that change over time. I, ideally, that, that would be a nice way that people change. But, but the problem is that it's difficult to complete each of these stages or tasks uh, well enough to sustain that change over time. So somebody who kind of ha doesn't have a decision that is really firm, when they get into action, they kind of question themselves, why am I doing this? And they relapse. So the idea is that, that lots of times people go cycle through these stages multiple times. Once they relapse, they, they go back to an earlier stage. So... Some people relapse and go back to pre-contemplation. Some people relapse and go back to contemplation. Some people relapse and go back to preparation. Some people relapse and then kind of relatively quickly afterwards kind of move through the process and get back into action. So that's why it's typically kind of seen as a spiral. If it's working well and people are making progress in terms of learning how to do this and, and make this change really happen, then it's more like a spiral than a than a circle. Now I that, believe kind of, yes, I believe uh, your research group studied primarily uh, tobacco and smoking cessation. Is that correct? Uh, that's how it started. Uh, we've been into alcohol. I've done some stuff with drugs. We've done a lot of stuff with uh, health behaviors, uh, diet, and. Um, but yes, a, a lot of the work, initial work that we did, was really in the area of smoking cessation. It's one of the best uh, addictive behaviors to study because it's the easiest to study. Uh, did you find a high relapse rate with people that were trying to quit smoking? Did uh, more people relapse than not? Oh, yeah, that's usual. I mean, basically, any, I mean, in any one cohort of people, the, the majority of the people will actually relapse. So I mean, if you I mean, if you think about relapses long term, so I mean, it's true for alcohol, it's true for uh, cigarettes. And about you know, it, it total abstinence, 
in any one cohort of people who tried to quit and are have made a quit attempt, it's about 20 to 30 percent at one year. So yeah, lots of people relapse. So uh, what do you think is the best way to deal with a relapse? I mean, I think some people get frustrated and stop trying, but that's not really a good way, is it? No, I mean, I think that's that's the whole point of this model was to teach. I mean, originally we thought about relapse as a stage, and the whole point of the uh, the model was to kind of understand relapse as an event. Uh, the, the, an event that we should learn from. So basically what we really would like to see is people kind of taking the relapse and saying, okay, I did this last time. What parts didn't work? So this part didn't work. I mean, I don't think I really had a firm decision. Uh, I don't think I really had a good commitment. I mean, I I was trying to do it along with a whole bunch of other things, and it was too problematic. I don't think I had a really good plan. I, I was going to make this change, but I really didn't give myself any space to do it. I didn't give myself uh, – I kept putting myself in harm's way um, in terms of, uh, you know, cigarettes or alcohol or drugs. And, and – that wasn't a good way to do it. So what the idea of relapse is, is a learning experience, or it should be. But you're right, lots of people get discouraged, and they kind of go, well, gosh, I guess I, I'm one of the ones who can't change. But almost every person who has actually been successful has thought that at one point. Well, we always encourage people who are trying to make a change, you know, to not beat themselves up over if they don't change perfectly, and to keep trying again i think i read a number that the, it takes like an average of five tries to stop cigarettes or something like that yeah i mean people have an average five to seven people use or whatever um you know some people have have, have made a lot more quit attempts and again you know i think people should look at you know what was the quality of this attempt or what was the quality of this change process because you know, I, I smoked a long time ago, and, and there were days when you'd get up and you'd go, okay, I'm quitting. And you'd make a very quick decision, and you'd throw away your cigarettes, and you'd do all of those kind of things, but you weren't really committed to doing it. And later on in the day, you'd kind of go, oh, man, this isn't a good day to do this. Uh, so, you know, that was not really, I mean, that was an aborted attempt, but it was really not not really much of a of a quit attempt. Uh, it didn't have the kind of preparation, the thoughtfulness, the the real concern and interest. It, it didn't complete the tasks of the stages well enough to really support any kind of long-term change. Well, that sounds like there wasn't very much preparation involved. Um, talk a little bit about preparation. Yeah, well, I think... You know, originally, I mean, if you looked at the original pieces of the model, we always tried to have a uh, a decision-making kind of transition phase. And we could never find it when we did kind of looking at different um, measures like the Eureka and some other measures that we tried to use. So we, we originally started out with pre-contemplation, contemplation, action, and maintenance. And, and then when we kind of start looking at contemplation ended up being very large group of people. And then you got to say, well, wait a minute, you know, some of those people were a little closer. What, what made people move out of contemplation and what made them closer to kind of taking action? 
And it was that the bridge of commitment and planning, it seems to me, that, that, that made that uh, next stage. So that's why we called it the preparation stage. And, and there, you know, it's really building the commitment to doing this. I mean, is this, and commitment really means prioritizing. Uh, commitment means putting it at, um, you know, g- giving yourself space, uh, both kind of emotional and cognitive space to be able to uh, make this change and the, uh, put in the effort that you need to be able to kind of make this change because all change is hard. Uh, actually, I'm right close to Washington. Uh, trust me. Uh, change <laughs> is very hard. Um, uh, so it, it, it's, it's hard for all people to change. So you, if you don't have the kind of space and prioritization and uh, g- giving it, allotting it the kind of uh, psychic energy that you need to actually do that, uh, that's what we call commitment, and that's what you need to be able to do that. The second thing is a plan. Um, You know, some people try to change just like, well, I'm just going to do it. Well, you you can try that, but that's what I call kind of bare-knuckle changing. You know, you're just trying to hold on, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. But, but without a plan and a way to kind of uh, build a coping mechanisms in, it, uh, that kind of change is very, very difficult to sustain. So, so preparation really has those two elements in it, the, the commitment and the preparation and the, the, the planning. Well, I, I know when I quit cigarettes, I had uh, a lot of planning involved. I got Chantix. I was carrying... Uh-huh nicotine gum with me, I was carrying chewing tobacco, I was charting every cigarette that I smoked. I was very highly addicted to cigarettes, um, and I only smoked un- unfiltered hand-rolled cigarettes. So, yep, well, you were the uh, hardcore, yep. Very hardcore, but eventually, you know, between the charting and, you know, some of the things just uh, gave me confidence. I never opened the nicotine gum, and I never opened the chewing tobacco, but they were there, if I needed it, uh, but eventually between charting and the Chantix and uh, being determined, I got down to two per day and then got to zero. And uh, I did have a very elaborate plan, and I was also using substitutes. I was chewing on cinnamon sticks to have something Uh that was kind of tobacco-like in my mouth, but not no nicotine. And uh, But it helped, and I finally got there to, to no cigarettes at all. Um, now, as I tell people, my I have one to two cigars a week. Uh, don't inhale them, so it's much safer. It's a relatively mm-hmm. safe way to use nicotine, and it's it's not addictive use anymore. It's just a recreational use now. Right. Right. I think that's really uh, you know how a lot of people have to do it. I mean, there are some people who kind of find it, you know, they don't need as elaborate a plan and they kind of once they really have made the decision they made the decision and they kind of move on and, but they still usually get rid of all the cigarettes. They do a number of things that really kind of clear the space around them so that they really can quit. So yes, I do think that, you know, planning, that sounds like, you know, a, a good plan and, and sometimes you don't need all the supports. So sometimes you didn't need to open up some of that stuff, but but having it there gives you the a little more confidence. Absolutely. Um, tell us, how do people get from pre-contemplation to contemplation, to from not thinking at all about changing to starting to think about it? 
Well, normally, I mean, if if we're kind of uh, sitting around and kind of uh, happy and doing what we're doing and whatever, people don't think about changing. I mean, people who are enjoying their cigarettes and kind of going, okay, well, I want to do this, or enjoying uh, kind of uh, like what like the the, the lifestyle as it is with the drinking or the drugs or whatever it is in it are not really considering change. So something has to come in to kind of shake that system a little bit, to kind of say, wait a minute, is this really working as well as I think it is? Now, I think, you know, almost all of us, if the pattern that's starting to kind of create consequences, we're aware that this is probably not a good thing. So that's really what has to get activated is the concern that, you know, what I'm doing now hmm, isn't quite, uh, isn't isn't the thing that I need to be doing or something that I'm doing, there's something not quite right about this. And that creates the interest that moves people into the consideration. Now, sometimes people are pushed by other folks, too, or outside concerns. Mm -hmm. So consequences sometimes will teach people or or get people uneasy. You know, uh, people kind of the hangover the next day. Hopefully the hangover the next day teaches you, boy, that wasn't such a good idea. I think I had too much. And see, in self-regulation, that's what that's supposed to do. When mm-hmm. it gets out of control, then, you know, people don't listen to those those messages. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about this uh, with our guests earlier, and uh, uh, negative consequences, yes, they can be motivators. We're also talking about sometimes people who are traumatized, yet excessively traumatized, and too much trauma can actually make it harder to change. Right. I would, I would, I would agree with that, I think. And, and it does that for a couple of different reasons. We want it kind of uh, freezes you so that you don't have the um, the 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 energy or kind of the focus to be able to kind of move there. Uh, the other is it really undermines so all of the change process that we uh, engage in involves kind of a the self-regulation process, so the individual's ability to kind of manage and control their behaviors. Well, trauma actually undermines that self-control and, and weakens that self-control a lot of times so that there's it makes it harder to change. Not impossible, but it makes it harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were talking about sometimes instead of, you know, people going farther down towards the bottom, you actually have to bring people up from where they are to get them to the point where that they have enough resources that they're capable of making the change. Right, and I don't think it's any surprise that uh, the people who have been most successful in quitting smoking or the people who are most successful in uh, changing their alcohol behaviors, that the first group that's able to do that or the, the, the most successful group in the beginning is the people with more resources uh, because the resources enable you to kind of get the time and the energy and the focus to be able to kind of do that. People who are struggling with, you know, HIV and homelessness and depression and a number of other things are really, um, they're, they're, all their energy is going into kind of just sustaining themselves uh, uh, with all of those things that are going on. Uh, and it then becomes very difficult uh, to, 
to get the space and the energy and the focus to be able to kind of make this change. So it is, I mean, it does help me to understand, you know, why it's so difficult and why when the people who have the most difficulties are the people who are uh, low socioeconomic status, uh, struggling with multiple problems, have mental health as well as substance abuse issues going on, that complicates the change process. Well, I know when I decided to quit smoking, what motivated me was um, my five-year-old adopted nephew was uh, mm-hmm. after me to quit smoking, and his grandmother had died from smoking, and he was really not didn't want me smoking at all. I, I promised yep. him, I promised him when he started first grade, and I would be starting a graduate program at the same time. I said I will stop when when you start first grade. I will put my quit plan in place, and that was my motivator. Yep. No, I think a lot of people find those kinds of events. Uh, we we uh, you know we did a lot of um, open-ended questions when we did a lot of our research. So we got a lot of stories of people, um, you know, somebody who quit smoking. That 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 the trigger to kind of get them really concerned or get them moving was, you know, their dog died of lung cancer. Uh, somebody else had burned a child who was kind of running up to them to give them a hug and they had the cigarette in their hand and mm-hmm. and, and their arm kind of hit the cigarette. Uh, so we get a lot of stories where there is kind of an emotional moment, a, a kind of a teachable moment where people kind of go, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Um, I need to make this change. And that really just activates the process, activates the concern, you know, shifts the decisional balance and seems to really make a difference. Okay, how about that move from contemplation to preparation? Uh, Can you tell Uh me a little bit about that? Well, I think what what happens from there, the contemplation process is really making a decision. Okay, so so once you've made a decision to do something, then then you really have kind of moved into what I call preparation stage. Now, the the problem is, uh, I don't know about you, but I have a to-do list. Uh, There's a lot of things on that to-do list. Uh, On that to-do list are things that I have decided to do. Uh, So I I have decided that I'm going to do them, but I don't get to them. So the idea then is, you know, once you've really kind of, you know, had the decisional balance kind of... uh, uh, it, uh, in, a, in, in favor of change, and you have made the decision, you still need to kind of go to the next step. So it's really that decision-making. Uh, it's a risk-reward analysis. It says, you know, yeah, I think I'm going to do this because this is, this is in my best interest. That's what gets you out of contemplation and, and moves you into, into uh, preparation. Now, the, 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 I mean, it's interesting because I think most of us think of the decisional process as one that's totally uh, rational. And that's Mm -hmm. really not true. I mean, I think your reasoning, you know, one of the reasons you had was your nephew. Well, there's as much emotion as reason in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do think we have to, you know, we have to expand the way we think about decision making. It's not just, it's about values. It's about um, 
you know, uh, important things in our lives. It's about emotional kinds of uh, reactions that we have to things. Uh, all of those, and it's about, I think, more the more we're doing now, it's about what we call implicit cognition. There, there's stuff going on even below the surface that kind of is bubbling there that kind of is changing the way we see this particular behavior. And, and when all of that comes to a head and, and uh, we see more negative or we see more kind of pieces of it that we don't like that as opposed to what we like and what's functional and helps us, then we move out of there and move into preparation. Okay, how about um, action? Action is what everybody thinks of when they talk about change, but it's, there's a lot more to it than action. T tell me a little bit about moving from preparation to action. Well, again, if you've got a, a plan and you've got commitment, then what, what the implementation of the plan, so, you know, when you started, I mean, you had all your stuff together, you had your tips, you had all of those things, and now you're going to start implementing your plan. Well, the, the issue of action is often uh, sustaining that implementation. And, and many a times the plan has some problems in it. So there's several pieces of action that you need to focus on. One is, you know, if the plan isn't working, what do people normally do? Well, relapses. Relapse is common when the plan isn't working. Well, if the, yeah, well, what happens, though, is if the plan isn't working. So what they do is they, they throw out the plan. So if you think about it even in terms of, uh, like, exercise, so you decide you're going to actually, you're, you've made a decision, you've got a plan, you're going to join the gym, uh, you're committed to doing this, it's January 1st, you're going to go do this, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and you've decided that you're going to exercise after work every day. And you start in January and then all of a sudden there's, you know, you're working, uh, there's a big project that came in and now you're working until six or seven o'clock in the evening and you go, gosh, I don't really want to go to the gym after six o'clock or seven o'clock in the evening. So that plan is not working. So what most people do is they give up on the change. Mm. But the, the idea behind that that's most functional in action is revise the plan. So, okay, it can't be after night. What about lunchtime? What about in the morning? How can I... How can I revise this? Do I have to do it at the gym? Can I do it at home? Uh, you know, so if you're really committed to the change, you have to find another way to implement the plan uh, or change the plan so that it, it's, it's one that's feasible to be implemented. And that's really the key about plans. Plans have got to be effective because that's key, but also acceptable and accessible. So if your plan doesn't have all three of those things, it, it's probably destined to fail. If you don't really believe it's acceptable to do all the things that you said are in your plan or you really don't have access to them, so you don't have enough money to join the gym, that plan has failed from the very beginning. So you need all of those things, and once you get into action, you need to kind of implement that. So, so, so revising the plan is critical. And, and making sure that you have the skills to implement the plan is also critical. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about maintenance and termination before we leave. Uh, the stream is going to time out, but we will still be recording. So what you say will still be captured in the archive. So we're okay. going to talk a little bit about um, maintenance and termination. So tell me a little bit about the maintenance stage. Well, maintenance is simply the behavior becomes second nature. It becomes normative. It 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 gets integrated into your lifestyle. It's it's no longer I'm doing this to make a change. It's this is what I do. Um, so, you know, for a lot of smokers, it's kind of like you know now I'm just I don't smoke, and that becomes really the norm. Um, so that's really what maintenance is. And, and, you know, you have to sustain that over a period of time before you actually can kind of get, you know, now I, I don't think at all about cigarettes. So termination is really just the final uh, piece of the puzzle, which says, okay, you're no longer in active change. Uh, you really stopped this process of change. Now, I'm still not ever going to be like someone who's never smoked. But the process for me is over. I have made the change. And and what's the difference between maintenance and termination for me is in maintenance I'm still struggling and I could relapse. In termination, I actually reinitiate. Um, it's no longer a relapse once I get into termination. So I could start smoking again, but it would be starting smoking again for me, not a relapse. So that just is an important, I think, consideration because you know, we have to finish some things because uh, long-term, uh, we, we only have a certain finite amount of energy. So I need to work on other things like diet and exercise and other kinds of things in my life. Uh, so it helps, it, it's functional to be able to kind of say, okay, well, the smoking stuff is sitting on the side there. I've, I've really done that. That's, that process is terminated. Let me work on these other processes. Okay, do some people um, still continue to have to fight uh, and not you know, get to the point where they're comfortable to keep fighting the rest of their life to maintain the change? Yes, and I think that's the difference also. I mean, there are some people who really are in perpetual maintenance rather than termination. So termination isn't automatic. Termination is, you know, somebody who's really been able to leave it behind. But if if you're still struggling six, eight, ten years later uh, with urges to smoke and do those kind of things or whatever, then that's much more of kind of a long, uh, long maintenance rather than a termination. So yeah, I do think that 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 can happen. And for diet, there may not be. Uh, you know, you have to change the way you eat, and you have to do that permanently. And but you know, there may not be a termination phase in diet. It may be something where, okay, I gotta keep I gotta keep focused on this almost all my whole life, but I need to do this. Uh, but but for some people there is that they've kind of they just changed this is now the way I eat. I don't like that other kind of food. I don't like the high fat foods now. I only eat the low fats and and, and it becomes just part of who they are. It becomes the new norm. Then I'd say, okay, well those people have really kind of moved out of uh kind of trying to eat a healthy diet, they just eat a healthy diet normally. Okay, I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Carlo Di Clemente, for being our guest this evening. You're welcome, Ken. Good luck. Thank you. And everyone, we're closing the episode. Good night, everyone.